I'd argue the single most important measure of a fundraising outcome is mm. not measuring money or finances, mm. it's measuring relationships. Mm. Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organisations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. It's fantastic to have you along today to the Arate Podcast. And today's guest is Nigel Harris. Nigel is the CEO of the Marta Foundation, which is the fundraising and community relations arm of the Marta Miss Cordia Limited. Uh, for those who live in Brisbane, you'd understand that as a, a number of hospitals. And uh, as you'll learn in the podcast, they have quite a number of other related and yet distinctly different businesses as well. And uh, I've known Nigel for, I guess, Oh, about seven or eight years. Um, he's a lovely guy and uh, he is incredibly knowledgeable about philanthropy and fundraising. He has really dedicated the majority of his career to becoming a leading expert in this space. And uh, it's really fascinating um, for me as somebody who sits on uh, a philanthropy board of a not-for-profit but I suppose for all of us in business who are either uh, giving money to not-for-profits or working for not-for-profits or on the board of not-for-profits or just generally interested in you know this area of how do not-for-profits remain financially funded, um, it's fascinating to hear somebody really dive deeply into this topic. And uh, I'm sure you'll find this um, podcast really worth listening to regardless of whether you work in the sector or not. A couple of interesting things about Nigel. He is the only person that I've ever spoken to who was actually headhunted into his role by a nun. And uh, I thought that was quite hilarious. And uh, I don't think I'll be employing a nun in my business uh, as a headhunter anytime soon, although uh, it sounded like quite an amazing experience. He also cites reading the World Book Encyclopedia from cover to cover as a child as being a formative experience in education and uh, for those of us old enough to remember World Book you know we um, uh, our parents would go out and buy a 20 volume set or whatever so reading the World Book is a uh, encyclopedia from cover to cover is quite a monumental uh, achievement Um, and on a more serious note um, Nigel talked about servant leadership which uh, was a expression or a business phrase I'd never heard before, um, largely uh, business success through service. And uh, I found that quite interesting to um, understand that more. So anyway, uh, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Nigel Harris. Well, Nigel, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's uh, great to catch up with you. I know we've known each other for a long time, and uh, we've been threatening to do this podcast for a long time. So it's good to uh, finally make it happen on what is a really beautiful uh, Brisbane uh, winter's day. Uh, What's happening in your world at the moment? Tell us a little bit about what your current responsibilities are. Sure. Thanks, Richard. And it's finally good to be part of this as well. So uh, thanks for having me. Well, I'm CEO at Marta Foundation, and it's a role that I've held for 21 and a half years, or 22 and a half years I've been at Marta. And a it long time. Like, uh, talking half years almost brings us back to um, uh, being a child again, but uh, it's been a long time, and I guess for me, uh, that whole journey has been one of uh, difference and continuing change. But right now, we're in uh, uh, another interesting evolution of Marta, and uh-huh. uh, the big challenge, and in fact, uh, in 24 hours from now, we'll uh, be talking about a new uh, branding approach for Marta as a group, okay. and that's very exciting as well because it is a conversation about how Marta, many people perceive Marta as a hospital or as a group of hospitals. We're much, much more than that. Sure. Well, just uh, for those people who aren't familiar with Marta, because uh, well, I have a li- listening audience, which is bigger than just Brisbane. Yep. So just tell us a little bit about Marta and then you know, uh, go on to talk about what's happening from a Marta point of view. Sure. Well, Marta is a Catholic healthcare entity uh, founded by the Sisters of Mercy, which has its own particular resonance in the, the story of Brisbane. 
and we trace our journey back to uh, uh, before the turn of the last century. And the mm-hmm. sisters arrived in Brisbane in 1861 and really pretty much from that time got themselves involved in healthcare. They bought land to build a hospital here on this site in South Brisbane in the late 1800s and uh, opened a hospital in 1906, building on Marta Hill in South Brisbane in 1910. They were real pioneers in public and private uh, healthcare, so ran a private hospital to fund a public hospital, mm-hmm. which they first opened in 1911. Okay. And their story then transcended maternity hospitals, children's hospitals, public-private, and really talks to generations of families in Brisbane and beyond sure. who have come through Marta, whether it be through the birth of children, the care of elderly relatives, or anything in between. Yeah. So, as I say, for many people know Marta as a hospital or a group of hospitals, but since 1928, the Sisters of Mercy have been pursuing medical research, mm-hmm. and in 1998, Marta opened a medical research institute, mm-hmm. so 20 years on, and Marta has also been committed to health education for decades, and, and 10 years ago spun off an education business as well. Uh-huh. We also own Holy Cross Laundry, and of course Marta Foundation is in fact the first of the companies that was actually spun off by Marta way back in 1989. Okay. So we're a group of companies, and really, as we stand in 2018, we're changing our conversation to really reflect that shared connection that's much more than just the provision of healthcare, mm-hmm. it's actually a composite of health education, research, with a really strong philanthropic thread underpinning much of the work we do as well. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, where your role comes in. Absolutely, and one of the beautiful things about my role is that it stands on a history with Sisters of Mercy that goes right back to Catherine McCauley, who founded the Sisters of Mercy in 1831 in Dublin. And Catherine's story is, is a marvellous one, but the thing I like about it, she was both an adept fundraiser and a very generous philanthropist. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about philanthropy being served by fundraising in mm-hmm. 2018, we're really just continuing that same legacy of Catherine right. nearly 200 years ago in a contemporary sense. Okay. And today, what we're able to do through philanthropy is different from 100 years ago and 200 years ago, but the ethos remains the same. Right. And so talking specifically about the Marta Foundation, just give us a an idea of your remit in terms of headcount and, and the sort of the key uh, measurements of your business. Sure. Well, to put a few numbers around it, we're a, a foundation, so we're a charitable entity in that context, uh, um, and we are one of the larger healthcare foundations in Australia now. So we would turn over around $70 million a year mm-hmm. in gross revenues. Uh, when I first started with Marta in 1996, it was around $2 million. So mm-hmm. it's been an interesting growth in that period of time as well. Um, from a numbers point of view, we're around about 85 or so full-time staff now, okay. full-time yeah. equivalents. Uh, we've um, moved through a fair bit of change. We've actually uh, diminished our staff numbers as we've moved into a more group arrangements. But we're a, a business with lots of arms and legs, but our biggest component of our business is actually our lottery program. So many right. people will be familiar through generations with Marta Price Homes. Yep. We're actually the first real estate Arc Union in Australia. Right. And the first Marta Price home was offered to the public in 1954 and became a continuing program in 1960. And I bet, you know, I, I had these two lovely chaps knock on my door recently and uh, uh, were very smart in signing me up for your uh, monthly prize home. Uh, and, you know, I'd be wondering back then when it was the first home, you know, they say, wow, it's a million dollar property. Back in 1950 or whatever it was, it was probably, wow, it's a $50,000 property or would that be right? Absolutely. You know, pounds, <laughs> pounds. Yeah. pounds. Uh, I think the, 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 uh, the first enterprise home, if I actually think, was about uh, £34,000 right. on the Gold Coast. Uh-huh. But in the 60s, we had the same sort of program. We had people going door to door, selling tickets to the motor prize home. Mm-hmm. So it's funny how much doesn't change right. through the, the, the circles of time. But today, our Marta Prize Home Lottery, and in fact our lottery program, because there are several programs in that, really talks to around 50 million of that 70 million revenue. So it's a big program, and one that connects with literally millions of people. And uh, is based on a very loyal supporter base, who, sure, no one argues with winning a prize, but so many people that support Marta Prize Home support it because they connect with Marta. They see Mm. that as their their contribution, among other things. Yeah, I imagine, Whilst most people buy a lottery ticket because they really, really want to win, uh, most people, certainly myself included, buy the Marta 
uh, prize home ticket, not expecting to win, but knowing that the money's going to a good cause. Absolutely, and we've actually just completed some market research that continues to affirm that. Right. Very much where people see it. That said, six times every year, we'll call someone to tell them they've won. Yep. So to date, no one said no. Right. Uh, we've had a couple of people that have been pretty questioning in okay. terms of our bona fides when we're on the phone. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But generally there's lots of whoops of delight and tears yeah. of joy. And do you get to make the call? I do when I'm around. So right. actually I really enjoy it. Oh, that'd uh, be awesome. And, but of course these days it's, 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 things have changed a bit in the last 20 years. No longer are we calling landlines, we're calling mobiles. And with selective call screening, right. it's an identified number. It may not always be the first thing people do. In fact, we had a winner several years ago who's a couple and the lady insisted on not taking our call and finally right. their registered letter arrived to find that they're being informed they've won a prize home and so her husband was a little irate that she actually <laughs> didn't take the call. You didn't leave a message. Well, we never leave a message. Right. We never leave a message. Okay. Um, no, we actually respect people's privacy. Right. We need to be sure that we're speaking to the person who is actually the ticket holder. Yeah, sure. So oh, there's a little bit of, uh, or a lot actually, in terms of protocols around how okay. we actually manage All right, great. Well, as you mentioned, you've been CEO here for 20-something years. Yep. Uh, but before we start to get into all the change you've seen in that time, let's go back to where it all began sure. for you and tell us a little bit about you know, where you were born and mum, dad, brothers and sisters in your early life. Well, I'm about 2,000 kilometres from what was home. I'm an Adelaide boy. I was right. born and bred in Adelaide. And uh, uh, from families like so many South Australian families that have come out of country South Australia and settled in Adelaide, uh, you know, sort of first or second generation. So, uh, so much of my early childhood experiences with relatives from country South Australia. Right. And in fact, in the last 13 years or so, my mum and dad have lived in a little town in country South Australia and I lost my dad earlier this year and uh, he died probably 60 kilometres from where he was born, okay. uh, which was a wonderful circle in many respects in terms of returning home. So I still have a great fondness for South Australia. I love getting back to the mid-north and uh, um, being where, where our mum's living, but uh, uh, I've got, apart from mum and dad, I've got a younger sister and uh, and I'm married to Leanne, who has an Adelaide background as well, and uh, she has two siblings, and her mum still lives in Adelaide. We lost her dad uh, about four years ago. Okay. And, uh, and so um, uh, where you grew up and your early schooling and sewing, to tell us a bit about well, that. Well, yeah. Um, one of the things that is fun to tell about our family story is that mum and dad, and probably more dad than mum, like to shift a lot. So right. after uh, being relatively stable in the early years, uh, we moved houses a lot. And, what sort uh, of work were they in? Well, Dad was in insurance, and so was Mum for a while. And Dad okay. moved into the non-profit sector in the late seventies. Okay, um, so interestingly, I've actually followed his path in some ways. Right, and, uh, but um, look, I remember as a kid, Dad drawing house plans, and mm -hmm. I remember actually copying him and, and spending a lot of time as a kid instead of drawing other things that right. kids would draw. I'd draw house plans as well. So we did end up shifting on maybe average every eighteen months to two years. Right through the whole time until I actually left home at 21. Because he was building new homes? Or? Well, we were just buying and selling, and in those okay. days in the 70s, and uh, I was born in 1960, so I, you know, there was a period there in the 60s and 70s where you could actually buy and sell and make money on every right. successive property transaction. Things changed down the track. But I remember coming home, well, I'll tell the story, coming home from cricket one day and seeing my bed being lowered out the window and figuring that we were probably on the move again, so I'd better get, <laughs> get with it. But uh, ironically, since... Uh, I moved out of home at 21. Uh, I think I've shifted uh, four times. Right. So it's it's it's, it's kind of uh, stagnated. So anyway, uh, born and bred in Adelaide. We uh, I went to school. Uh, well, in fact, I went to three different schools when I was in grade two. Right. Uh, that was uh, that was a bit of uh, a bit of a challenge for a six-year-old. Sure. Uh, part of that was living in country South Australia as well as in the, the city. And I did my high school education at uh, one of the colleges, Ponton Grammar School, mm -hmm. uh, which is. Uh, uh, one of the uh, older colleges in uh, in Adelaide. Okay, and uh, any sort of part-time jobs when you were at school? Sure. In fact, my, my part-time job was uh, stuffing chickens. Okay. So uh, I actually uh, took a job stuffing chickens with chicken stuffing, right. as you do, and uh, putting them on rotisseries and then cleaning rotisseries in a chicken shop. In the <laughs> 70s, uh, chicken shops were uh, right. a, a real thing uh, in, in terms of takeaway food, Yeah, and I got paid the princely sum of 80 cents an hour. Oh, wow. When I left the job, uh, I was up to $1.50 an hour. So, okay. uh, yeah, that was, uh, but it, it, it was the first sort of real set out of independence right. and starting to, to make your way sure. you know, in a world, and I had some pretty tough bosses, um, but it taught me heaps, yeah. 
We have a lot in common, and uh, I, when I was reading your CV, which will come to light as we talk, but my first job was uh, working in a butcher shop. So uh, uh, I wasn't um, stuffing chickens, but I was stuffing sausages. Uh, and so how did that... Um, you finished high school, and then what happened after that? Yeah, look, for me, uh, <coughs> you know, I, I finished high school just before I turned 17, finished matriculation, which was year 12, matriculated, and uh, could have gone to university full-time or go to work um, and study part-time. Mm. So I, I chose the work option. I've yeah. had about four job offers, but one was with a, uh, a friend of the family's, um, someone my dad knew in Apex, and he was very keen that I go and work for him, so I, I did in refrigeration wholesaling. Right. So I, I'd started work probably within 10 days of leaving school, yeah. and I was in this really different adult world of uh, selling refrigeration parts to uh, tradies, and that was a whole baptism of fire. Sure. But I then went on to study part-time for the next couple of years. And, uh, but in those days, part-time study was very unfriendly to people working. So yeah. I needed to take a few hours off a couple of mornings and make up the time on Saturdays. Right. And, and that became a bit of a slog. It got in the way of playing football. It okay. got in the way of a lot of other things. And uh, I, I peeled off uh, study at that stage to okay. re later on. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This is our, our next area. Um, so my first job out of uni was with Bondor Cold Rooms. And uh, so, yeah, good old Aussie uh, refrigeration uh, name Then at the time that I worked for them, owned by James Hardy. So you worked for those guys for about six or seven years, moving in through a bunch of different roles, um, internal sales, state sales, um, general sales manager. So, and then, you know, obviously a very substantive change because you moved from the, then into the not-for-profit sector, didn't you? There, there are probably two catalysts that really took me to the not-for-profit sector. And I think, again, just to go back to, and this was uh, 1984 when I made that move, and probably leading into that was even a year prior. So what we see is the not-for-profit sector in 2018 is a very different uh, world compared to I 1984. Bet. It sure. was where people went to retire. It was where people were sort of on their last career. Um, but it you was mean it's very, not like that anymore? Well, maybe in some parts <laughs> it still is, but it was a very... Um, emerging and unstructured right. area that was really transitioning from much more of a completely volunteer focus into something a little more organised, a little more rigorous in part at least. Yeah, And it was certainly a world where my then 23, nearly 24 year old was quite a foreign uh, body. I mean, I, I'm right. several generations younger than most people in the sector at that time. But there were really two things that led me there. Uh, the first was I got involved in Service clubs, particularly Rotor Act, which was a 18 to 30 uh, spin-off of Rotary. Right. And and that came about because I was invited through a fellow in, uh, uh, I belonged to a church youth group and uh, someone who I was really probably quite intimidated by actually was a member of Rotary and gave me a chance to attend, or at least apply to attend a youth leadership seminar, right, mm. a Rotary Youth Leadership Award. So I got this opportunity at 19, um, or 18 I think it might have been at the time, and uh, went to the seminar and then within months I'd been invited to join Rotor Act and then within months I'd been selected to do a national team study exchange and this whole world opened up to mm. be a community service but mm. it wasn't totally foreign because I'd grown up with my dad in Apex yep. and mum and dad involved in community so really if there was a legacy it was my parents having a really strong anger mm. and indeed their families but particularly them painting a sense of community as being a really valuable place to be from a volunteer context. Mm. So it was through those connections that I sense of doing something in a community service sense. Mm. Uh, I also saw my father move into the non-profit sector, so that was an influence, but probably not the most overt influence mm -hmm. for me. But I knew also that I really didn't want to be in refrigeration wholesaling all my life. It was a job, but that was all it was. I and Rotor Act <laughs> and football and girls and all those <laughs> sorts of things were distractions <laughs> for me. But the community sector really held up. So. Again, a family friend through both of my parents, but I also knew her through her husband's involvement in the Rotary Club that sponsored my Rotary Club, offered me a job in 1984. Right. And again, it was such an untried, untested fashion, but I thought, well, I'll take it. Um, it was the place I wanted to go. Yep. I'd just become engaged a couple of months before, and it was funny, people used to talk to my wife who was in on the bank and say, you know, what does your fiancé do? And she'd say, well, he works in non-profits is in fundraising and they look at it with this sort of almost a sympathetic expression and say, right. is it a real job does he get paid for that you know how are you going to survive if you're going to get married yeah and it was this whole sort of strangeness mm. about what we were stepping into and even then i think that uh, the fact that um, 
certainly am. My wife backed me into this mm. strange venture in the same year that we mm. just bought a house, just about to get married, was a bit of a, yeah. a, a testament of faith as well. So anyway, it it's was, interesting, yeah. you know, as a bit of a segue. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk now. This whole concept of not-for-profit is very misleading and carries with it a lot of those um, stigmas of yes. the past. You know, whereas this idea of being um, not uh, or profit for purpose um, uh, or not for dividend is um, uh, probably more reflective of the sector, and yet not for profits really remains, you know, the key three-letter acronym, hasn't it? It has, and it's it's frustrating. 35 years on or thereabouts to still find so many of those conversations that I experienced in 1994 circling around. Um, yeah. you know, the same questions get asked of people in terms of real job, do you get paid? I think there are two words off that three-letter acronym that actually get left off. Not-for-profit of shareholders. Right. Because if we add those two words in, yeah. we actually start to change markedly what our whole communion with not-for-profit right. really means. Yep. It doesn't make doesn't mean don't make money or don't make a profit. It actually simply means don't return it to your shareholders. Yeah. So return it to mission, return it to right. social purpose. Of course, you can only achieve that mm. by making money. Yeah. Funnily enough, Catherine McCauley, who I referenced earlier, right. was really wise in actually calling that out in 1831. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new concept. It's that we haven't really got there as quickly as we should have. Mm -hmm. And then it brings into question the whole idea of, well, what is a shareholder versus a stakeholder? Um, because uh, if I'm invested in your success, then in some degrees I am a shareholder, even though I'm not a financial investor. Um, well, okay, so uh, so you're at Arthritis Foundation, um, uh, joined them through a family connection, and then from there went to Arana Incorporated that I'm not familiar with. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, just to... So, I mean, just to cycle back for our throat <coughs> for a moment, because it was a wonderful starting point for me. I had a, had a wonderful boss who really took me under her wing, and she was a very experienced public relations professional and mm -hmm. well-regarded and gave me a terrific start. But to give into my mid-20s, I had itchy feet for the what next question. Yeah. So, and so I was really restless at the same time learning. It was through the time of joining Arthritis Foundation, I started back into study again. Stuck to it this time, mm -hmm. got a public relations qualification, which I then followed on with marketing. But mm -hmm. Orana Incorporated is a disability organisation. It actually was founded in 1950 as the Mentally Retarded Children's Society. Okay. So completely politically incorrect these days. <laughs> but like a lot of organisations, in fact, its pathway for, for Queensland listeners is very, very similar to the Endeavour Foundation. Okay. Almost identical in terms of when they were founded, a year apart. It changed the name. Endeavour used to be the Subnormal Children's Association. Wow. And they went through this... this period in the 50s and 60s and 70s mm. with no government funding, mm. uh, parents and community supporting organisations and and then changed in the 80s into something quite different. Mm. So I, I joined Arana in 1988, but that was the third time in about space of two years that I'd applied for this job, the same job at Arana. Right. So I, I said I was restless and had a G right. And I think I perhaps got there in persistence, but uh, okay. I got there eventually. And I Is was that because the previous two successful candidates failed in the role? or Well, one left for very good reasons, right. and the second didn't last for her own reasons. Sure. So I guess I was just persistent in saying, well, the job came up, I'm going to have another crack at it. Yep. Uh, I was manager of community liaison, so mm -hmm. 27, I was in a senior management role in a non-profit organisation, mm -hmm. and I look back and think that was pretty raw but I had responsibility for fundraising, public relations, communications across a statewide disability organisation, mm -hmm. serving around 500 clients. It was a large-ish non-profit organisation mm -hmm. in those days. And the thing I didn't really know that I was out of, out of my depth, I mean, I kind of adapted and learned, and you learn quickly. Mm -hmm. But if I look back now and think about employing 27-year-old Nigel to run a senior responsibility, mm. I'm not sure that I would have been quite as enthusiastic as my, <laughs> as my, as my boss then. But anyway, he backed me in, which is well. All's well that ends well. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so four years there. And, and then... Six, uh, six years there, actually. Oh, six yeah, six years, years there. there. Okay, yep, I beg yep. your pardon. No, no, and, then, uh, and then off to sunny Queensland. Absolutely. So again, same itchy feet, I suppose. I mean, I, I had... A wonderful experience at Arana and uh, worked with terrific people, including the senior execs. And I had a, a CEO, a director, who I learned a lot from, actually, and continued to use a lot of his wisdom today. But um, I think for me, there was always this sort of bigger what next. And I was at a conference in Queensland, a fundraising conference in Queensland in the early part of 1994, and I saw a job for 
advertised. I've had notice boards back then at mm -hmm. conferences. And um, there was a role of development director at Royal Children's Hospital Foundation. Mm -hmm. So I said to my wife, who was at the conference with me, maybe I should apply for this. So I'd been flirting with the idea of possibly moving interstate, maybe Melbourne, right. somewhere else. We had two young children at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, they would have been about four and three, I think, uh, maybe older than that. Um, but rolled the dice, applied for the job, and uh, through the course of the middle of that year, uh, um, was offered the job, and within a matter of weeks, it seemed, I was living in Queensland, and family followed two months later. One of your four moves as an adult. Absolutely. Right. That's right. That was That's exactly right. And that were was, there things that attracted you specifically to Queensland, or was it just that the role was here? It was... Again, it was the job opportunity. It right. was a, a bigger job in, a, in what was then the most established right. hospital foundation in, in Queensland with a very enigmatic and engaging CEO, someone mm. who, who really uh, almost I was uh, spellbound by in terms of her energy, enthusiasm, and one of the most wonderful entrepreneurs I've ever worked with. So uh, she um, she convinced me, I guess, believing uh, myself and backing myself in the role. It was a huge move. And, mm. and not... In fact, in some ways, it was probably less of a huge move professionally. That, that was a logical stepping stone to the what next, mm -hmm. given six years at Orana. So yep. that was reasonable. And I was 33 then. Massive move from a family point of view. I remember my mother-in-law sitting in the home telling me that I was taking her family away from her. And I said to her, <laughs> I'm taking my family right. to Brisbane to actually set up our life. Uh -huh. and, and my father-in-law, bless him, was actually said, no, he's right. That's what, he, that's what they're doing. So I keep reminding my mother-in-law of that, and she sort of now has a very different historical version of it. Right. But, but at the same time, concedes that it was a good move, and the kids were young enough to be portable then at four and three, so they didn't really have a lot of memory of Adelaide in that sense. And it was really one of those windows you have in your, in your life when you mm. say, well, if we don't do it now, mm. we may actually find it much harder to do it later. And, of course, ultimately someone offered me a role, backed me in, and uh, I took it up. And mm -hmm. so at 33, I was development director and deputy CEO at the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation. Mm -hmm. So again, a bit young, but there I was, more and, or less. And uh, how did you find uh, working in a hospital and part of that establishment versus you know the type of not-for-profit that you'd come from? Was there substantive differences in the culture and the kind of work that you were doing or was it very similar? More different than the same. I mean, I, I was, the work itself was, was different, but the scale was, was markedly different. And I think the thing I found with working in intellectual disability, it's a, look, it's a tough, mm -hmm. it's a tough gig. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sadly, there are a very limited number of people in the community who really care deeply enough mm -hmm. for people with intellectual disabilities to support them philanthropically, which is in some ways very mm. uh, unfortunate because when you see the opportunities that are afforded to people who can fulfill their lives through living independently, working independently, mm. or the combination of philanthropy and other support, you think, well, this is a pretty darn good mm. thing to be on. Mm. But working in a children's hospital mm. is almost the polar opposite sure. because it was like a magnet for support. So there was... So why, why do you think uh, people... Um, obviously, it's a generalisation, but why, why is uh, philanthropy in a disability-related not-for-profit different I mean I get you everybody wants to help the sick kiddies right but um, but are there other uh, more broader things uh, at play in terms of that I think it's about relevance I mean philanthropy right. is really about people wanting to do good and Hugh McKay writes about that in his book what makes us ticky he says right. we're all basically good guys therefore you know, we have this natural draw to do good so we do we seek to do good in places that are relevant to us yeah so the relevance of children who are facing illness and injury mm. is pretty clear for most of us mm. that have some connection with children, whereas disability is something that we don't necessarily think about unless life takes us that way. Yeah. And there's an interesting connection. I'd been at uh, Royal Children's Hospital Foundation maybe for three or four months, five months perhaps. Family had been up for three months. I'd been filming a piece for uh, television, actually, uh, coming into Christmas. We did... First ever Children's Hospital Christmas Appeal was the year okay. I arrived and was involved in that, and we were filming a piece about accident emergency. And mm -hmm. we had a, um, a mock up of a trolley going to accident emergency in Children's Hospital. A week later, that was my son. He'd fallen out of a first story window and right. been rushed to the Royal Children's Hospital mm -hmm. because he had uh, a fractured skull and fractured mm -hmm. uh, wrists. Uh, and you know, it was just 
the most horrible experience you sure. can have as a parent. Yeah. So uh, I guess the reason I tell that story is because these things touch us very personally mm. and sometimes in the most surprising and um, strangest ways. So I think that's really simply right. the explanation I offer is it's about that relevance factor mm-hmm. is that it doesn't take much of us to much for us to think about being protective of children, yeah. responding to their needs. Clearly, if we're parents, there's probably a bit more of a, a motivator, mm. but it's not even just that. Sure. And so two years there. Two years there. And yeah, then yeah. off to uh, the matter. Well, that's right. That was actually one of the <coughs> most difficult departures for me in as much as I have, still have enormous regard for my, my uh, then CEO. Uh, she was very much seeing me as her successor. There mm-hmm. was a great opportunity. But it was a very well-established organisation with highly competent people and a lot of the things that were there were already mm-hmm. done. I was still finding my way in what I could actually contribute. And in the meantime, one of my staff, one of my managers who was reporting to me, had been offered a job but ended up turning it down at MARTA to head up what we now know as MARTA Foundation Fundraising and mm-hmm. uh, put a lady who has been pivotal in my life in touch with me to talk about me going there instead. I'm talking about Sister Angela Mary. Mm-hmm. So I had this call from Sister Angela Mary seeing if I'd have a chat with her about this role. And I had no intention to leave Royal Children's Hospital Foundation. Right. I was really... So you were headhunted by a nun. Uh, correct. Fantastic. Which is, which, and, and, and Adelaide boy, <laughs> Anglican background, no sense of Brisbane, right. really still two years or so in there. Yeah. All this stuff was really kind of strange to me. But the thing I found immediately was a, a sense of connection and rapport mm-hmm. that began to really frame my thinking and say, well, gee, maybe I can make a difference here. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that I couldn't make a difference at Royal Children's Hospital Foundation. I had a strong sense of being able to make do something more significant at Martyr, and that sounds probably more noble than it was really meant to be. But again, you know, I'm, I'm 35 now. I'm, I'm really sort of still wanting to test this, this mm-hmm. career that I've been in for, what, 10 years, uh, 12 years, perhaps by that stage, 12 years. And would it be fair to say a very female-dominated career? Absolutely. An interesting point you make, actually, <coughs> because with the exception of Irana, which had a, a real mix of, of mm-hmm. staff because of the nature of the organisation it was, Arthritis Foundation and Royal Children's Hospital Foundation almost exclusively saw me working with, with females. Right. Uh, which I was entirely comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And and that was interesting in, in terms of, I don't know, maybe it just sort of talked to a real comfort set. I mean, I, I mentioned before I was involved in Rotaract, which was uh, a, a mixed age, a mixed, mixed gender um, service club. This whole notion of uh, male, female, uh, difference, and that's going to stand really strange mm-hmm. as soon as I say that, I mean, I got a sense of it, but, but in terms of an employment context was not something I've ever really yeah. dwelt on, was yeah. entirely at ease with. And so, and again, that's where a number of the really significant mentors mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. uh, Neil, Gail, Sister Angela Mary, have all been significant figures. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been, if I think back on it from a leadership context, that affirmation of a sense of female perspective as well as mm-hmm. male perspective because yep. flipping that around I've been involved in playing Aussie rules footy right through to my mid 30s mm-hmm. and coaching and so I you know sort of have these different uh, elements happening around me but I think that was important so mm-hmm. so yes you're right a strong female centric mm-hmm. uh, focus and the sector fundraising sector is still very female centric mm-hmm. yeah. And so you came across as director of fundraising that's right literally yep. almost exactly 12 months later promoted into the role of CEO. So how did that come about? Well, the conversation I had with Sister Angela Mary from the beginning was really about, I want you to come to Marta uh, as Director of Fundraising, but I want you to succeed me as soon as yeah. I'm comfortable and the board's comfortable, particularly the board's comfortable. <coughs> she, she will say, and she'll still say, she just turned 93 a couple of days ago, um, just the most remarkable woman, but she says, I was never a fundraiser, never comfortable being a fundraiser. She understood exactly what is involved and was involved, but didn't really see that as her role. But moreover, had a very keen eye for succession. Mm -hmm. I came to know her and came to know her story. I saw her actually lining up succession Mm -hmm. for the roles that she filled as Mm -hmm. administrator of MARTA, you know, the subsequent roles, and was absolutely adept in enabling people to Mm. carry on. And that, that was a wonderful legacy. So she was quite clear, and she was quite clear in saying, look, I know that's what you were looking at where you've been. Uh, 
I want to make sure that I'm not taking that opportunity away by offering this to you. Mm-hmm. And literally, she was faithful mm-hmm. um, because within a year and a week, I had succeeded her. And, right. But that was also about giving comfort to a board yep. who were uh, much older men and women than me, and, mm-hmm. and some of them I found pretty scary. But I had a wonderful chairman, a man named Bernie Dawson, who uh, Bernie's since passed away nearly 20 years ago now, but he was head of ANZ in Queensland okay. in the late 80s. And again, a very supportive chair and a, a wonderful human being who backed me in as well. So so here I was in 1997, uh, at the age of 36, <laughs> taking on the role of what was in a much smaller non-profit organisation. Sure. But, you know, and I remember thinking at the time, there's a lot I don't know. Mm. And it was daunting, but at the same time, absolutely exhilarating in the sense mm. of what can you do sure and uh and i imagine the mandate of the role has changed many times over the 20 year period but at that point you know um uh welcome to the role of ceo um this is what we want you to achieve what what was the mandate back then well it's really about taking up that cudgel of fundraising practice and establishing a more deliberate organized approach to what we were doing that's not to say we weren't we were neither deliberate nor organised, but but I guess fundraising in Marta at that time had been quite disparate. Mm-hmm. There were uh, some really quite innovative programs, and I mentioned the Arc Union or Lottery, which mm-hmm. has its uh, own history. But I think if I look at what was evident in Marta, and certainly probably true in many organisations at that time, and still many now, there was not a connection. So one of the things I had come to learn uh, 12 years into practice at that stage was that fundraising is meant to be the assembly of the parts, mm. not a series of disconnected elements. So the thing that I could do early in that piece in serving Marta was beginning to bring those elements together. Sure. So I'd already started work on that, obviously. In fact, in many ways, that first year was very much the apprenticeship in the role. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary was very clear in enabling me to take on responsibility that was really about segueing into that next step. So as I say, it was a wonderful... Um, preparation and ascension into a leadership role mm-hmm. uh, that was stewarded in a way that I can only admire still years later. So yes, it was really about thinking about the challenge and, and what we needed to do to be relevant to Marta. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of competing interests at the time. Everyone wanted their own piece of fundraising uh, just because it made sense to me. These disparate parts would connect together. That wasn't necessarily how everyone else saw it as well. Mm. and. So we, so we needed to actually get some wins. And I think the other thing that really occurred to me at that time was I needed to continue to invest in the relationships. So being very much connected with the people of Marta and to spend time mm. uh, over a long time building relationships with people was important. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I needed to do, get some results. Yeah. And I suppose to... Uh it would have been from a, a morale and from a, uh, to maintain that initial enthusiasm that you, um, it, it would be great to actually see the benefit of the work that you were doing and how it was actually being applied. Um, I imagine that must be a big part of the rewards of this kind of role is saying, okay, we raised this amount of money, but what was done with that? And wow, look at all these fantastic things we've been able to do. Look, it's easy to, <coughs> fall a little too much in love right. with the romance of philanthropy and yeah. fundraising and outcomes in as much as probably getting a bit misty-eyed or even a bit too close to some of the, the elements of cause. Yeah. That said, uh, I think you can't help but connect with that sense of accomplishment and yeah. what you see achieved, particularly over time. Right. If you look at what philanthropy enables uh, yeah. in, in terms of facilitating services. I think one of the things that really challenges us still in this in this vocation and mm. this work within organisations is that we don't give it enough time. We're far too impatient for results that are impossible to accrue quickly. Yeah. So you have to be able to build confidence that things will occur mm-hmm. over time, mm-hmm. uh, but still give enough time for things to settle sure. to their natural and inevitable conclusion. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a bit about this before we yeah. started the recording, and I'm very keen uh, to sort of dip back into that conversation. Um, one of the things I suppose I imagine is that over those 20-year periods, that 20-year period, uh, 
the craft and science of fundraising would have um, modernised. And I note from your CV, uh, you went back to university and you did an MBA. You went to Harvard and you uh, did a specific not-for-profit um, uh, management course. You've done a whole range of um, uh, different professional development uh, uh, courses and so on. But how much of the way that you've evolved your thinking do you think has been based at looking out at the world and looking at world's best practice and saying, how can I apply that here? versus how much of it is, has just been your own maturing of thinking and your own um, uh, self-developed and discovered strategy? Yeah, for me, I'm someone that needs to know why. So I'm right. always curious. I, 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 sharing a story the other day with someone that is a, a teenager, I read the World Book Encyclopedia from <laughs> A to Z. Um, That's a big read. And it's a big read over a long period of time. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, have a bit of a keenness for information. Not that I retain at all, but I think from a, a, a vocational context, for me, the question was always around what's the evidence behind what we do rather than it feels right or it seemed to be appropriate or whatever other sort yeah. of abstract notion. So I've been very much an evidence-driven person, and mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to be one of a group of people, a group of 10 people that ushered in a fundraising practice credential to Australia in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Now, the last... One standing. Right. Everyone else is retired. The last bastion. Um, so I'm now the, the longest uh, serving credentialed fundraising right. practitioner in Australia. Wow. Um, which uh, is interesting in itself. But but that credential was something that gave me a substantive base in saying, look, I'm a fundraising professional, not because I say so, but because there is a practice credential yep. that I've had to sit an exam and have to continue to do a body of continuing education around to keep. Mm. That coupled with doing a MBA with a fundraising major, so I did that through what's now the Australian Centre for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies. Mm -hmm. um, certainly other learning opportunities that you've identified and that continued quest for, so what's the evidence? Mm. What I have seen in the last 20 years, which I think has been fabulous, is the emergence of research, academic research and practice research that sits underneath fundraising practice. And with that, there's also been an explosion of literature. Now, with all literature, there's good and there's bad, but I think there's there's certainly a, an evolving body of knowledge around fundraising practice. Mm -hmm. The downside of that is that still many people in fundraising practice haven't found their way to either the literature or the research. Mm. And that's really, really frustrating. I bet it is. Because it limits us in terms of what we can do professionally. So, so again, this is something that I think that uh, we still need to get far more mature about. But mm -hmm. for me, yeah, it's really this, this pathway to testing knowledge I've been part of uh, an international credentialing body. I served on that board based in North America for six years. I've mm -hmm. since been involved in uh, their periodic re refreshing or review of the credential. Mm -hmm. I'm currently serving on a uh, uh, ph philanthropy centre board, advisory board based out of the UK with uh, two of the world's only professors of fundraising. Uh, so that proximity for me is really almost the source of my fundraising life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in relation to all of that, you know, you were surrounding yourself by other professionals who no doubt were bringing their own experience and knowledge to the table. But if you think back, you know, perhaps over your more recent career, um, what are some of the things that you've done that were initiatives that you're really proud of that you'd say, okay, well, I can hang my hat on this and say, um, you know, uh, I, I, I've created some new thought or you know you talk about evidence-based yeah. outcomes you know the, here are some outcomes which are evidenced that strategy that I developed and implemented was actually successful. I think um, they're almost small wins. Uh, uh, four years ago a colleague and I, uh, a fundraising colleague and I developed a leadership program for fundraising practitioners. Mm -hmm. we, we thought at the time when we first introduced this that it would be something that would be pitched to more senior practitioners, mm. but in fact what we found more often than not was uh, the uh, the audience we had, the people participating in these one-day seminars were more uh, younger or mid-level professionals. Mm -hmm. What's been terrific, sort of four years down the track, is to see the number of those people that have really moved ahead in their career, and, and not because of Peter and I, I'm sure we might have had some small influence, but because they already were motivated to do more in that sense. But having some small hand in shaping thinking around leadership and around some propositions in, in terms of professional practice. I've, I've 
seen play out a number of these folk who are really the emerging leaders mm. of this profession and it will be far bigger and brighter and better than I mm. ever was mm. but uh, just that ability to almost hand the baton on to mm -hmm. those folk so it, it's a small thing but a significant thing mm. I think for me the stuff that I really enjoy is almost that invisible stuff the ability to or the opportunity I should say to uh, to speak to someone around um, fundraising governance or to this morning I spent some time with a, you know, I've been mentoring you know, the QUT uh, M executive MBA program, mm -hmm. it's been wonderful. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, whether it's influencing someone or helping someone uh, uh, prepare for a credentialing exam, all those little mm -hmm. things for me are the, the, the important shifts. Yeah. Influencing almost person by person because you can see where they mm. go and you can see what they do with it. Because I imagine historically they would have said, okay, if we're gonna recruit somebody into this role, who's got the best Rolodex? You know, who knows the most people with the deepest pockets, rather than, you know, are they actually invested in the, um, the craft of their profession? So this is a really important question. And look, it's not historically, sadly, it's still now. Mm. And I think the thing that is missed, both institutionally and I guess from the, the sense of who's right for this role, is that it's really not about an institution going to market and saying, lucky market, we do wonderful things, come and give us money. Yeah, It's absolutely about going to market to understand where people's philanthropic aspirations might lie, mm -hmm. what, if anything, that you do that might connect with people's sense of doing something important for them, mm -hmm. and how you steward the relationship from the donor back into the institution, mm -hmm. which is really the inverse of the Rolodex notion. Yeah, sure. But then also recognising, you never do it alone, so any fundraising practitioner that says, I've raised X number of dollars, yep. in my view, is telling a bald-faced lie. Right. Because you never do it on your own. Mm. It's a combination of so many people and, mm -hmm. and, and occurrences. So you know, I can't say, and in fact, I couldn't begin to tell you the amount of money that's passed through this and other organisations I've been part of in the time I've been part of. I have no clue and have no interest. Mm. It actually doesn't matter. But I can tell you how much we've funded in terms of medical research in the last 15 years. That's a really cool number. It's about mm. 100 million. And that's really been seminal in terms mm -hmm. of the shift we've actually seen that enable. But again, it's 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 a sum of the parts, and mm. I think that that's the, that's the great joy of it. Mm -hmm. when, when you see someone who's making a gift get inspired, their eyes light up, they get real joy out of what they see transpire, and you connect them with people who are doing something cool. I suppose like, that's what I was referring yeah. to earlier. You know, yeah. um, okay, so. Uh, uh, from a recruiter's point of view, um, uh, uh, two questions. It sounds to me as though what you're saying is that people probably earlier in their career should say, you know what, I would like to make a career out of fundraising. So typically, what's the tipping point in terms of, is that somebody who's just graduated with a business degree or is that, you know, how far along in their career pathway in your mind is you know the right time to be saying that rather than you know I'm 55 years old I know the who's who around town I might have a crack at this fundraising thing yeah and I think that perhaps that latter example is probably more in play back in the 80s when I first joined the sector and I actually don't think that's really ever been a thing now obviously connections important in terms of having networks but again if it's networks to leverage your benefit as yep. the fundraising practitioner in the organisation. I'm going to continue to contend it's the wrong view. I got fascinated probably 30 years ago, but really from an interest perspective about 20 years ago, and the connection of servant leadership and fundraising practice and how that... Servant, acts, lead servant leadership. I've not heard that term before. It, it's a wonderful idea that in fact is, is as ancient as it is modern, but the phrase was coined by uh, Robert Greenleaf, who in the 70s wrote about servant leadership, which was okay. quite a... Um, an ethema at the time, which is sort of still you know, mechanistic leadership and Taylorism. And, and Greenleaf talked about this idea of leadership through service, and it's become far more common. Uh, Jim Collins talks about it in a lot of his work. Uh, Peter Drucker okay. references it. And in I fact, the more you scratch fellows. the surface, the more you'll find that servant leadership right. is actually quite a popular leadership theme. But what okay. occurred to me was, in my early days in fundraising, was it was really the fundraising professional's job mm. to lead through service to the donor and to the institution. Mm. So you are at your best when you're invisible. 
and it resonated with a saying from La Tzu that actually talks about leaders and talks and talks about the best leader when his work is done, the people will say they did it themselves. Right. And I thought, yeah, that's really the job that I'm in. This, yep. this is what this is about because the most successful fundraising practitioner, fundraising professional, mm. is one who is invisible mm -hmm. because the donor has found their way to something that works for them, an institution that works for them, and you've connected yep. people. Yet research, a couple of uh, Dutch researchers, Beckers and White King, did some research about uh, 11, 10, 10, 11 years ago that identified that 85% of gifts given are given through fundraising. That is to say that people, as much as they want to do good, aren't always spontaneous in terms of the way they'll find a way of doing things. So fundraising plays a really pivotal role. Mm. So in that sense, that servant leadership role, that service role is about facilitating an ask. So just to maybe try and understand that correctly, yep. you're saying 85% comes from the, the not-for-profit organisation asking somebody for money Correct. rather than the person voluntarily Correct. saying, I want to give money. Correct. Right. So, uh, so on that basis, if you were to say, well, <coughs> fundraising you know, shouldn't cost any money. Yeah. Yep. If we're prepared to accept the fifteen percent. Right. If we're prepared to accept a whole lot less in the sure. way of social outcomes, but if we're not prepared to accept that, if we want to go to the full hundred, then there has to be an asking mechanism. And if there's an asking mechanism, that costs some money. Yeah. Because that asking mechanism is only really going to be useful if it's sustained and scalable mm. to actually have impact across societal needs. And then I suppose you need to have a board. Uh, who are one convinced of the argument, and two, have got some key metrics to say, okay, well, what is a reasonable uh, return on investment? You know, and is it is it evidence based? You know, this is the norm. Uh, this is the mean and the median and blah blah. Or, uh, uh, I mean, does this, I imagine that sort of data does exist. Oh, look, absolutely, and I think that look, it's it's a board question, but it's also an executive leadership question. In fact. Uh, some research just across the river from the Australian Centre for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies at QUT actually identifies a CEO playing the most pivotal role right. in fundraising, supporting fundraising leadership and practitioners, but yep. also engaging board. But I think, yes, metrics are critical. Mm. Sadly, in, in a fundraising conversation, mm. we've still not really evolved mm. beyond the point of asking a question that is so fundamentally unanswerable uh, that it's it is ridiculous, but we still ask, them, what's your fundraising cost? Yeah, There is no such number. There will right. never be any such number. And I think that it doesn't take a lot of thought to actually understand why that's so, mm. because we're talking about a range of different uh, mission issues. Sure. We're talking about a range of different market factors that mm. vary depending on what your mission is and who you are. Yep. We're talking about a series of different modalities or models of fundraising activities that mm -hmm. will vary from organisation to organisation. Mm -hmm. So there can be no common metric and all of those things add up to your margin, yeah. which will be whatever it will be. Yeah. Now, of course, there are some benchmarks mm. and some evidence-based frameworks that would say if you run program X, then you should be looking at around this. But even that depends on those other factors, that mission, market and yeah. mo uh, model. And so what you're saying is that it, there's tremendous variability from organisation to organisation. Correct. Now that doesn't actually mean for a nanosecond that you don't have metrics and you don't have measures. You have all of that. In fact, the best organisations will have quantitative financial metrics, mm -hmm. quantitative non-financial metrics, mm -hmm. which are arguably more important, and then your more qualitative metrics as well, which actually talk to those other variables or factors that move around you. But now I'd argue the single most important measure of a fundraising outcome is mm. not measuring money or finances, mm. it's measuring relationships. Mm. Because if you can actually put some metric around relationships and the evolution of those relationships sure. through an organisation's circle, yeah. you'll begin to quickly get a sense of the patterns, both in mm. a quantitative and qualitative sense, that will realise mm -hmm. outcomes commensurate with what support comes your way. Right. That's fascinating. And I think that you know an extra complication and I speak about this from my own experience because I'm on the philanthropy board of a um, art space not for profit. Is that uh, you know the chair is often somebody who comes from a very strong commerce background, you know. So they're used to asking the hard question, you know, um, how many cents does it take? Do we have to spend to make a dollar? Um, uh, finding and because these roles are voluntary and because largely people move in out of these roles, uh, you know, relatively quickly. I suppose um, 
you've got the new chair coming in who's been the CEO of a big you know, uh, corporate entity or whatever their background is, and so you have to manage up in terms of educating them, uh, okay, there's a bigger you know, consideration here. It's why, again, we can return back to the servant leadership proposition mm. in terms of a, of a leadership paradigm that I think is very apt because it is about managing up, managing sideways, managing yeah. across disciplines, yeah. different stakeholders, managing teams, managing yourself. Right. So all of those things, I think, are, are uh, part of that construct. But you're right, again, and look, it's absolutely understandable why people would bring that thinking into the fundraising construct. Mm. You know, those sorts of ROI metrics are very much in evidence in all sorts of other activities. But you miss the fundamental proposition of why people give and what actually brings them to give yeah. in not understanding why that isn't so in fundraising. And, mm. and my challenge is very much tongue-in-cheek, but it's also quite deliberate in saying, you know, from particularly from a commerce or accounting perspective, explain to me actually how that metric tells you anything about fundraising performance. Mm. Because it can't. Mm. It actually can't. It will tell you what happened six weeks ago, or maybe a year ago, or it might have. It's full of historical information, but mm -hmm. it actually doesn't give any particular uh, insight mm. into what's happened in a business and why, mm. and what you might do about it in the future. It's completely silent on all mm. of those factors. And then we do something even more ridiculous. We try and compare organisations. Mm -hmm. Some wonderful research again out of the Australian Centre for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies that uh, talks to the comparison of annual reports. And the findings are roughly this. Looking at 17 different organisations and their annual reports, 15 report differently. So if, and then they go on to make a far more elaborate uh, uh, series of observations, but I guess the essence of it is if everyone's reporting differently and in fact uh, uh, treating the way in which they do business in different ways, you actually can't compare. Yeah. So uh, we still try to do that. Not right. But not only is it about reporting, but it's about comparing an organisation that, say, serves a cancer constituency versus one that serves intellectual disability or one that has an environmental focus. It's, it's, it's chalk and cheese or it's about picking a favourite child. Sure. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, look, I've been just really, you know, fascinating. Um, uh, I've never heard it explained this way, but what you're saying uh, makes uh, complete common sense. You know, uh, uh, if you look at um, all not-for-profits as being the same, it's not that well, we're a car manufacturer and how much does it take to produce a Ford um, versus produce a Holden. Um, there are so many other variables um, uh, that make every situation very unique. One of the things, uh, I hosted that not-for-profit leaders lunch at the Brisbane Club a while ago and you spoke. One of the things I was quite staggered by was, um, you know, I work in the CBD and I walked you know, down the street to have meetings and for lunch and so on and so forth. And almost on every corner now, there's what I call a charity stalker. And I think, how on earth are these people um, successful? Because 19 out of 20 people who walk past um, are annoyed by the intrusion. But from what you were saying, that's actually a very successful way to um, uh, raise funds. Look, it is when executed well. Right. And I say that with a, as a deliberate caveat, because not every organisation seeks that execution, and perhaps mm -hmm. not every uh, provider of that service will execute as well as others. But mm -hmm. when executed well, does serve organisations well. We're one of those organisations who have been served well by it, and as have many others. In fact, the single biggest growth with daylight second in fundraising revenues in Australia for the past decade and a half has uh, been around face-to-face uh, -face acquisition. Yep. And, and this will completely gobsmack most people, but it's completely true. It's the most efficacious form of fundraising in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, mm. again, if considered longitudinally. Right. So we, we look at it and we think, well, it costs X and it, it raises this, but the whole point of acquiring a supporter is like acquiring a client. You don't get your return on acquisition. You get yep. your return down the track, and that's the point. Mm -hmm. So once you look at that return, in fact, it, it almost rates off the charts in every way except perhaps giving a... You know, very large gift of six or seven or eight figures or a bequest or something of that nature. Yeah. So, and they have terribly longitudinal, but obviously very effective as well. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's true. What the challenge in the market around that area of activity is, is probably a saturation point, is, is execution, as I mm. say, and probably, again, oversight from some organisations in terms of poor governance or mm. less, than a, less than a desirable governance, but it doesn't change the fact that what people are doing are asking people mm -hmm. to consider supporting mm -hmm. organisations in the main on a continuing basis. Mm -hmm. And that's another really critical piece because going back to an example I gave before, if, if, you, if you're con 
providing that sustainable support, significant things can happen in mm-hmm. terms of societal benefit. If I'm providing one-off support and I'm providing it in a way that um, I may not come back again, we're probably not going to accomplish a lot. Sure. And so that, so again, we come back to this question of, I'm not advocating for a moment that metrics are not important. They mm-hmm. are absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. But what we tend to do in most examples of fundraising practices is use the wrong metrics. Mm-hmm. And we need to think our way through as to what the useful metrics are that talk to uh, sustainable, scalable, uh, strategic uh, outcomes that can actually truly impact mm-hmm. society in mm-hmm. the way of achieving uh, benefits. Great. Now, I'm conscious of time and uh, it is getting late, so uh, just a final couple of questions before I let you uh, pack up and uh, either hit the computer or head home. Um, you know, 20 years in the role, what's next? You know, uh, when you look to out to the future for perhaps the next five years or so, where do you see your own um, professional development happening? Sure, look, I'm... Um turned 60 in a couple of years' time, so for me, I'm becoming really conscious of what that next question is, and not for any particular reason apart from, I guess, the older you get, the more conscious you are of, right. uh, of the march of time. Um, I, I think it's, in some ways, there are some odd questions that come up, even having been in a role here at Marta for so long. Mm. It's, it's, I'm conscious that it's viewed as perhaps something of a bit of a anachronis- anachronistic player in that role. Um, this role will continue to excite me until the day I leave it. Mm. But I'm also aware that that day has to be much sooner now. Um, but the other thing for me is, in time, there are some really exciting opportunities uh, around um, working with other organisations. I don't mean for them, but with them and helping to develop uh, the way they look at fundraising, mm-hmm. particularly from a governance and executive context. I mm-hmm. think that's an area that needs great work mm-hmm. and that we are perhaps underdone, and again, I may have many critics that will listen to this and say, well, that's not so, but I'll argue a contrary case. I think the idea of pursuing evidence and looking at some of the questions around what we're doing is really exciting as well. Um, writing, teaching, those sorts of opportunities sure. are, are terribly exciting. But, but, but moreover, I think one of the responsibilities we have as leaders, particularly as we get older in a professional sense, as well as chronologically, yeah. is passing things on. Mm. And I mentioned Sister Angela Mary before, who at 93 is still one of the most fabulous mentors, and she is one of the most influential people in my life in terms of passing things on, mm-hmm. enabling succession and passing on a baton and just simply creating the opportunity for me to grow. And that's my debt that I owe mm-hmm. other people as well. Mm-hmm. I hope I've influenced some people so far. I hope I am today. I hope I do that in the future in some way or form. Mm. Well, I can only imagine that uh, uh, both executives and non-executives working in the sector, uh, listening to this podcast, uh, may be keen to learn more. Um, I'm sure there's many things that you've just touched on very briefly that could be expounded on uh, at great length and and be extraordinarily informative uh, for their future strategies. Last question. So we've talked a lot about work today, uh, your career and your current role and so on and so forth, but you know, what makes Nigel tick when he's not at work? You know, what are the things that you like to do to uh, you know, keep the tank full and, and keep you excited about life? Well, my wife Leanne and I like to travel, and uh, although we don't get as much opportunity to do that, although our friends might disagree, Leanne runs a tourism <laughs> business, which now right. sees her a lot more anchored to Brisbane, and that's exciting in itself, and uh, even you know, working with her and watching her develop that business is fun. Uh, beyond that, we have two adult children, 29 and 27, and seeing their lives continue to unfold is, is fabulous, and spending time with them is good fun, as well as uh, extended family. Uh, I, um, a year or two ago... Uh, kind of really found myself in an interesting moment where I was answering the question, what do you do for a hobby, in a fairly blank way. Yeah. I, I really found I had little answer. You know, I'd like to think I was playing golf, but I really wasn't, and I'd stopped doing other things. So I took up singing lessons. I know, so, and so, uh, I'm good, glad that you brought it up. So I thought that might, be the, might have been the segue. So over yeah. the last probably year and a half or so, maybe a bit longer, I've uh, um, been very quietly learning to sing. I'm not sure that I'm particularly good at it, but it's a wonderful step away from everything else in life so the, the half an hour or an hour a week I might spend doing that is a complete escape but it's a journey into another part of my mind and to, to doing something different and you're obviously not including your singing in the shower time in that no no this is actually <laughs> more structured approach to, to learning the techniques behind singing right. and only a couple of months ago I did my first live gig so right. that was uh, 
that was a terrifying stepping out that uh, really challenged my comfort zone beyond measure, which is part of the reason I'm doing it as well. You know, I love doing uh, opportunities to uh, speaking and presenting. Right. And that's also a great uh, way to get better in that arena. Sure. But moreover, it's just a, it's a hobby. Yeah. So that's good fun. Uh, beyond that, yeah, look, really just uh, uh, soaking up life, uh, as I say, reading, travelling, uh, walking, just spending time with friends. Uh, yeah, just, just really making sure that you live every moment because uh, you never know when it does change. Well, uh, I think we're all pretty close to getting the Arate podcast band together because uh, Peter Bertels, the CEO of Super Retail Group, is a bass player. I'm a guitarist. Nino DeMarco, uh, CEO, or I think he's exited now for yes, All Flying Doctors. He's a drummer. So I think we've got the whole band. We'll have to... Uh, uh, get some gigs organised. Well, that sounds a bit like the Hamburg Club in 1963, so maybe there's a whole new uh, career opportunity for all of us. That'll be fun. Enjoy fantastic. That, yeah. Well, look, um, uh, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks very much and have a fantastic week. Thanks for chatting to me. Thank you for listening to the Arate Podcast with Richard Triggs. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richard t at The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.